Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You are tuned in to The Image Show. We've got a wonderful morning for you. Today is Sunday, July 14th, and I tell you, we were live on location in Boise, Idaho. Uh, it was such a lovely vacation. Some of you followed me on Facebook, and I just want to say thank you for all the great comments. Uh, thank you for making my vacation wonderful. Uh, this morning, we are going to speak with Terrence Cheeks and uh, some other guests, but I want to start off uh, kind of getting you guys a little more in tune to the Evelyn K. Davis Center, some of the upcoming events. We've got Terrence Cheeks on the phone right now with us. Terrence, are you out there? I am. Good morning, Robert. How are you? I'm doing great. And Terrence, um, first of all, I would also like to thank you uh, for helping out with the uh, basketball uh, tournament here for the Stop the Violence Image Program event. We had a huge wonderful, great turnout uh, Sunday. The uh, kids had fun. Everyone ate. And I mean, that was just such a wonderful event. I wanted to say thanks for your help. I know that you played uh, college basketball. We talk a lot about the olden days and uh, you show me a lot of the you know letters that you got from all the D1 schools. And so uh, for the insight and tips that you gave in helping uh, making the basketball tournament uh, event possible, we appreciate that. Uh, but moving forward, I want to speak about some of these uh, upcoming events. For those of you who may have just tuned in, uh, we are on the phone now with Terrence Cheeks, and he is uh, the job developer, one of the job developers at the Evelyn K. Davis Center for Working Families. And Terrence, so I know we have on July 17th, Michael Foods coming in for a standalone job fair. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, Michael Foods is a it is a company that is based out of uh, it's based out of Minneapolis, but they've recently opened well will be opening up a new um, distribution center here in Norwalk, Iowa, and so they are going to be filling positions um, such as lead uh, lead person for production, lead person for machine operators, for, for just regular production uh, operators, uh, maintenance mechanics, and and um, and a slew of others, and they're going to be looking at hiring about. 55 to 65 people to be able wow. to open up on their on their on their opening date of October 1st. Okay. And now I know that there's been a lot of success with these job fairs. I know that you were getting a lot of feedback from uh, different employers. Tell us about that. Well, the feedback has all been positive. Uh, we've been having some great turnouts. Some of the employers, when I sent out the survey, uh, some of the employers responded with uh, comments of uh, uh, they they were appreciative to be a, a part of the, the career fair and that uh, those that came through the door were, were dressed appropriately and were prepared with uh, not only resumes but great conversation about the about the uh, uh, positions that they were applying for. That is great. Now I know that we also have career fairs at the Evelyn K. Davis Center, and can you tell us uh, when the next career fair is? Um, as of right now, and, and, and you know Bobby as well, that we're going to be we're going to be moving to a new facility uh, across the street at eleven seventy one Seventh Street. Uh, but that will um, the next actual career fair is as of right now is on the calendar for August 29th. Uh, that may or may not change, but as of right now, that is the date. Okay, so that's tentatively August 29th will be the next career fair. And for those, yes, of, that is great. Okay, and for those of you who don't know, well, why don't you just tell us what is the difference between a standalone job fair and our normal job fair or slash career fair? 
Well, a standalone job fair would be where there's just one company who would showcase, you know, all the positions that they're looking to fill. So, so this next Wednesday on the 17th would be a, a standalone for Michael Foods to showcase all the positions that they're wanting to fill. So they'll be the only one that will be here as far as an employer looking to uh, fill positions. That's great. The, the career fairs are when we have multiple employers that are looking to fill, you know, positions within each one of their uh, locations. And the difference between the two would be that, you know, of course, one would be just one employer, and then the career fair itself would be uh, multiple employers. Okay. So the standalone is basically a single or uh, a smaller job fair, and the career fair is multiple employers looking to hire. Correct, on a much larger scale. Yep, absolutely. Okay, on a much larger scale. Now, is there any difference in qualifications or eligibility as far as the uh, standalone, meaning do you still need to have a resume uh, for the standalone as you do for the career fair? Uh, Yes, uh, everything still applies, whether it's a standalone or a... um, or a regular career fair, we 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 like for you to, you know, come dressed. Um, not as much as so as as the career fairs. We really stress to have you, you know, in a suit and tie or dress or or a nice outfit for the women. But uh, we do want you to come, you know, neat and presentable, and uh, and to have that resume ready, and uh, you know, and and let the let the standalone employer at this, you know, next week would be Michael Foods. Let them know what position you're you're interested in. That's great. Now, wait a minute, Terrence. Did I hear you say for the women? Dress up for the women? Well, yeah, I want the women to come dress. You know, oh, whether oh, it be. I, got you. I thought you meant right. guys coming dressed for the women. Okay. No. <laughs> My fault. I think I spaced <laughs> off for a minute there. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> Hey, and, you know, uh, for those of you out there who have maybe just tuned in, uh, we are in a live interview with Terrence Cheeks. Uh, He's the job developer for the Evelyn K. Davis Center. And Terrence has done a wonderful job, uh, you know, getting employers into the Evelyn K. Davis Center and also making sure that people are getting the adequate assistance in finding jobs in the Des Moines community. And I think that a lot of your recognition uh, goes unnoticed. And so I just wanted to personally say thank you, Terrence. And I think that you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you so much, Robert. I appreciate that. And for those who also may not know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Terrence Cheeks is also the brother of Maurice Cheeks, the former uh, all-star basketball player, NBA player for the Philadelphia 76ers. And he now coaches for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Is that correct? Yes, he's assistant coach for them. Okay, great. Well, Terrence, uh, again, do you you have anything else uh, to add to this interview? Uh, No, just, uh, you know, those that have had the chance to come in and – see some of our career fairs that we've had uh you know we appreciate you coming and hopefully you've you found employment that uh at one of the career fairs you've attended it but uh if you haven't you know feel free to you know please keep coming until you you find that that uh that job that you're looking for and like i say on the next week on wednesday we'll have michael foods looking to fill about 65 positions and then uh as of right now, we'll have a career fair at our new facility on August 29th that will have multiple employers looking to fill positions. So everyone who's been, haven't found a job, keep coming. Those that have not had a chance to come and uh, experience the 
the career fairs we're putting on here, please come out and do so. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard it July 17th, which will be this Wednesday. Is that correct? That is correct. And we will have Michael Foods there looking to hire uh, those of you who uh, may need some assistance. If you need a resume, if you need some clothes, uh, if you need uh, some kind of assistance, Terrence, I would imagine that you'd be available for that. And what number would they reach out to to, to contact you and to prepare for this event? Uh, 697-7700. And they can ask for me, and I'll make sure that they get the uh, proper questions answered, whether they need uh, calls for the career fair or if they need a resume, uh, whichever they need. I will be more than happy to help them. Okay, that number again is 515-697-7700. And you are tuned into a exclusive special edition with the Evelyn K. Davis Center's Terrence Cheeks. Uh, one of the job developers there. And we're going to go to a quick commercial. When we come back, uh, we've got a surprise for you. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on The Image Show. Again, today's Sunday, July 14th, and we've got, I told you that we're coming back to a surprise. And throughout my 4th of July vacation, I sat back and reminisced about a lot of the people who have passed away, uh, some of the people that have been on The Image Show and have had a huge impact, uh, not only on the show, but just in the success in moving forward and the different transition that we've had on this show. And one of the people that came to mind was a guy by the name of John Lee Harris Jr. Uh, this guy was became my new friend. And he was battling cancer. He was in pain. Uh, he would come in and talk to me and uh, you know, really share his heart and his passion with me. And I felt like you know, there were times that I could have did more to try to help him. Uh, we brought him on the Image Show, and uh, one of his biggest wishes was for his son, who has been spending uh, time in prison, who was actually sentenced to a life sentence as a juvenile. He wanted his son to come out and be successful. And, you know, I felt that this was really weighing in on my heart, and I thought that if there was something that I could do, it would be at least make a little contribute to uh, Buddy Harris. So I want to go back and play a little bit of the interview, you know, that me and Buddy had. Uh, and his son is B.J. Harris. Again, uh, he is set to come out of prison in about another year. Uh, he's at Rockwell Correctional Facility now transitioning out. And I'm not quite sure when, but I know that he will be out sometime soon. Uh, his dad, again, uh, John Lee Harris, passed away. And uh, BJ was able to go to the funeral, which was a blessing to hear. Uh, however, I want to take you guys back and just hear a little bit about uh Buddy and, and I call him Buddy. His name is John Lee Harris, a.k.a. Buddy. And again, he was my new friend. And I'm sure that he is up in heaven now, uh, smiling down at us. But let's just go back to a quick clip of Buddy. First of all, I would like to introduce our guest here today, John Lee Harris Jr., a.k.a. Buddy Harris. And Mr. Harris is the father of 
Marion Harris, and also the father of John Lee Harris III, a.k.a. B.J. Harris. And I want to, first of all, uh, before we get into the story, I want to introduce Mr. Harris a little more in detail and give him a chance to talk a little bit about uh, who he is, what he's been through as it relates to reentry. Keep in mind that both his sons, first of all, B.J. Harris is currently... uh, he had his life sentence overturned. He was uh, went into prison uh, with a life sentence. That sentence is now overturned as he was a juvenile lifer. He's on his way out after serving, I think, uh, roughly 25 years. And Marion Harris was tragically killed. And this was uh, the year... October 2011. October 2011. And so I think that uh, Mr. Harris is not only going to elaborate on how it feels as a father to go through these type of tragedies, but also as it relates to reentry, kind of the success in his son uh, reentering society. So, Mr. Harris, uh, we're glad to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've been through uh, as it relates to both your sons? Okay, I'm the son of John Lee Harris Sr. and the son of Olive Gertrude Harris and the grandson of Reverend John H. Harris. I would like to also thank the community for being involved with everything that I've done. Mr. Harris, can you tell us a little bit about your sons as it relates to being a father? What did you go through, first of all, uh, when B.J. Harris was sentenced to life in prison? It was very painful. And what year was that? Can you kind of take us through that time? Uh, During that period of time, I was uh, working at the U.S. Postal Service. And uh, I was uh, off work due to a back injury at the bulk mail center in here in Des Moines. Further, I'd like to say that uh, it was it was tragic and I didn't know what to do. Uh, Basically, I was dealing with addictions and I think my children were dealing with my addictions at the same time. So that was made to struggle even worse. Okay, now your son, B.J. Harris. Uh, was, first of all, convicted of murder. Uh, How did that feel as a parent to know that you had a son who was convicted of murder and was sentenced to life in prison? Tragic. Um, I really didn't, I think I was really numb at the time, and and I blamed myself for him being in that position. Why did you blame yourself? Because I was not able to provide for him the the, parent, the parenting that he needed to survive out here. And as time continued to grow, uh, what would you say was one of the things that gave him faith or hope? Or how were you able as a parent to still father your child while he was in, inside the walls? I believe my son believed in me and his mother, and between the two of us, we supported him, and uh, we believed that he would someday be free, and uh, and now that dream has been realized. Okay. I kind of just want to focus on, as a father, how did it actually feel uh, after maybe, oh, 10 years went by, knowing that did you ever think that maybe your son was never going to get out of prison? At no time. And, I, and, and, and discuss that part of it. 
I believed that America was changing, and uh, I believed that that I've, and with my encouragement, he would keep on doing the things that would be necessary within the DOC to be released. And what kind of changes did he make while he was in prison? He focused on education and uh, in his commitment to helping other people. And how did he do that? By educating himself, by becoming involved in programs within the prison community. And I think he was also helped by a lot of people I mean, a lot of people that were that knew the Harris family and knew his background, and that w- helped him walk through this. Were there ever times where you talked to him, either in a visit or over the phone, where you just kind of felt like uh, his hope was gone? And uh, did he, were, there ever, were there ever times where he actually gave up? Never. Really? Never. So he remained confident? Yes. Okay, tell us about that. Um, in my visits and conversations with my son, he would always be enlightening, direct, and positive. Oh, good. And I'm going to tell you, uh, buddy, I remember your son. I was in prison with him, and I know that he was the president and founder of the Growth organization. I know that he was doing a lot of positive things in the prison. So I think that uh, this is not only um, a good story and a good show for people out there listening, but it also sends off a positive message that you can do positive things in prison to prepare you despite what your conviction is. And so um, I commend you as being a father who was there for him because it was uh, very obvious that he had support uh, while he was in prison. And that makes a huge difference. I mean, just having money on your books, being able to go to commissary, uh, being able to buy clothes in prison. BJ, I noticed, was able to do all of that stuff. And it just seems like it's a, just a weight off your shoulder. So were you actually able to understand that being the father from the outside? I mean, did he ever discuss things like that with you? Um, we often discuss things like this. And and I was encouraged to continue everything that I was doing outside to create that atmosphere for him in prison. Good. Well, I salute you for being a father and being supportive of your son in prison, despite having a life sentence. Because when you go into prison with a life sentence, I mean, I could only imagine that it's got to be devastating <clears throat> not only to your kid, but also uh, to the father, to the parent. And so uh, you were supportive through that time. Now, I want to move a little bit past uh, B.J. Harris and talk about Marion Harris. I know that this was a a big incident in Des Moines uh, when Marion Harris was murdered. And uh, can you take us through that time? Well, during that time, Marion had refocused itself and was a student at the Des Moines Area Community College at that time. Okay. And Marion was into auto body, auto collision at DMAC. And that's something that my father was involved in that he wanted to do in his life. And he was directed towards that. And I supported it. And he welcomed it. And he was at school every day. Uh, what would you say uh, led up to 
this incident? I mean, do you think, did you ever have times where you blamed yourself? Uh, do you think that uh, there were things that he was involved with in the community that uh, maybe people were jealous of him? Um, I, I didn't know Marion very well, but I've always heard a lot of good things about him as far as uh, being a man of his word, you know, uh, being a man of integrity and standing on what he believes in. Marion always, uh, just like BJ, Alex was always doing things for other people. And uh, he struggled with some things, but I think he was get to the point where he was going making progress and his attendance and his effort in school. Um, I, I was really proud of him. Right, and I, I know that there were a lot of people that uh, stepped up in the community after uh, this tragic murder uh, in Puff with Mothers Against Violence. I know that you are also good friends with uh, Calvetta Williams and that you guys have a, a, a tight bond throughout this. Can you take us into how uh, Mothers Against Violence played a positive role in this? Um Calvetta was very instrumental in assisting with uh, the funeral arrangements and things of that nature. And she was also um, in daycare with Marion and BJ and the rest of my nieces and nephews with my mother on the south side. So um, she was well orientated with our family. And I think that uh, her and Marion had a bond. And uh, she went out of her way to assist in everything that was going on. And now, buddy, you, after going through all of this, seem to be so calm, laid back. I mean, I, I talk to you periodically at the Evelyn K. Davis Center. Uh, you're mm -hmm. always in support of family. And it seems like uh, you're a stronger man, first of all. But it, it, you're a stronger man than me. But it seems like there is a faith inside of you that allows you to continue to keep moving forward, and you don't really show your emotions. Um, is a lot of that hidden inside, or do you feel that uh, you know God has just uh, surrounded you with a peace? I think that um, that I credit that to my upbringing with my mother and and father and my grandfather and the many people in the community that have assisted me along the way. Um, I think that it takes a village to raise a child, and I think it took a village to help me get past all of this. Well, great. And now that uh, B.J. Harris, his case was overturned because he was a juvenile. He is now on his way out of prison. And is there any time frame when you expect him to be released? Uh, he goes before the parole board in September. And I believe strongly that they will release him at that time. And he will become involved with programs like yours and he will have total success. Well, amen. And uh, we definitely invite him into the Image Program. And I also encourage you to let him know that he can get involved with the Image Program in Rockwell City. Uh, it's still alive and active. And so, B.J. Harris, 
uh, Marion Harris, your two sons, and I tell you that I commend you for your faith in being supportive, and I deeply sympathize with you for losing uh, your son. And uh, I just hope and pray that as a community of Des Moines, uh, we're able to stop the violence and continue to keep moving forward in programming. So, buddy, tell me, how have you been able to manage to keep yourself functioning correctly? I mean, how do you keep yourself stabilized after losing two sons, one to prison with a life sentence and then another one to a vicious tragedy in being murdered? I mean, this must be painful just to think about and walk through uh, day by day after going through a situation like this. How do you do it? By continuing to educate myself and through programs such as the Image Program, attending DMAC and attending the Evan K. Davis Center, I've continued to educate myself and that encourages my son to continue doing the same. Well, good. I just want to thank you for being on the show. I believe, Mr. Pate, that your vision and your guidance with the program that you're implementing into the community needs to be respected and and assisted by the DOC and the state of Iowa. Boy, that was great, man. It's amazing how people come in this world and leave so fast. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Buddy John Lee Harris Jr. And uh, we will do everything we can once his son, BJ, is released to make sure that uh, we provide him with all the opportunity and services that we have available. And so that was just one of my reminiscences. And then I also had another reminisce as I was on vacation. And I thought about some of the people who... Uh, are still living and have had success throughout the Image show. And uh, one of the first persons that came to mind was Beth Skinner. Now, some of you may remember Beth Skinner when she came on the Image show. At that time, she had a position working for the Iowa DLC. And since then, she has been upgraded to become, listen to this, the director of the DOC. Can you believe that? Imagine that, the director now. She went from the position that she had, which I, I can't remember. We'll, we'll play the interview and, and, and recap. But she is now the DOC director. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. And Beth was also at the image program Stop the Violence uh, barbecue and basketball tournament that we had just yesterday at the Evelyn K. Davis Park. I mean, you know, I, we think about the success that comes along with uh, striving and being motivated to uh, pursue your goals. And Beth is one of those people. I mean, uh, one of the most friendliest people that I've ever met. Uh, She was uh, very well-spoken. And let's just go back to her interview and kind of look at that, Sweezy. Let's take them back. In the house with us is Beth Skinner, and Beth is the Director of Risk Reduction for the Iowa Department of Corrections. Beth, it is a pleasure to have you on the show this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this opportunity. Great. And Beth, I'll tell you, you are such a very knowledgeable person, and uh, you have, it seems to be all your ducks in a row with the DOC, the statistics, and we want to talk a little bit about prison 
this morning and some statistics. Now, with you, first of all, being the director of risk reduction, can you tell us a little bit about what you do, how long you've been doing it, and how you do it? Sure. I've been with the Iowa Department of Corrections for about four years, and I provide oversight for the research division. And I also provide oversight to our training and continu- continuous quality improvement uh, division as well. And basically before that, I was the statewide coordinator for the sec- Second Chance uh, Statewide Recidivism Reduction Grant. And prior to that, I was out in the national scene. And then prior to that, I'd spent 10 years of community-based corrections. So I've been doing this for about 20 years, even though I look like I'm only 21. But really what I do is I'm the number cruncher. Um, we're pulling the numbers. We have a robust data system for, uh, called ICON, the Iowa Corrections Offender Network. And I crunch the numbers. I help interpret them for internal for for internally internally for staff and for our stakeholders. Uh, I do that on a day to day basis. I do a lot of presentations, which you've been to one of my presentations, uh, talking about you know the statement of the problem, how I Department of Corrections is addressing some of those problems, and so I kind of have a, a, a potpourri of things uh, that I do. But mainly, I'm kind of the number cruncher and the the interpreter of that data. That's great. And Beth, I got the chance to hear your presentation at the uh, Iowa Task Force meeting uh, through the United Way. And I must be honest, I was very impressed. And I'm glad it's really a, a blessing to have you on the show here because there's so many people that have a lot of questions about the DOC, about how a lot of different things are operated, how things are calculated. So you've been working uh, with the DOC for over 20 years, correct? Well, I've been working with for the DOC about, DOC about 15 years, and I've been doing five years on the national scene with criminal justice issues. Okay. So can you tell us, I, I want to, first of all, talk about the racial disparity, disparity mm-hmm. in, uh, as it relates to the uh, Iowa DOC. I know that uh, we all know uh, Iowa is predominantly Caucasian state. And so with that, uh, you have a lot of different views on, uh, you know, this racial disparity. So can you tell us a little bit about the statistics on that as it relates to the Iowa DOC? Yes, absolutely. Well, we know in the general population of Iowa, the African-American population runs about, in terms of, for the U.S. Census, about 4%. We know those that are incarcerated in our nine institution runs about 24%. So there's a 20% difference between the general population and then who we have inc- incarcerated. Um, to us, that's, a, that's a, a disparity and a concern. The thing that I think is really important to note is that the criminal justice system is very large. It starts with uh, the policies that are developed, law enforcement, courts, corrections, reentry, community supervision. To address really racial disparities, it has to be a system-wide change at okay. all the different decision points. For us in corrections, I will tell you, we're doing uh, different things now. Uh, we're going start to tra- start training our staff in implicit bias. Uh, we also have a statewide policy that annually we report on certain metrics like work assignments, who gets into core programming, discipline based on race. We report that out. Uh, if we end identify disparities in any of those metrics, we will then take a deeper dive to see what's happening. Uh, we also develop a statewide dashboard that all staff and administrators have access to on specific metrics such as housing stability, unemployment, core programming, risk assessment, and it has race as one of the tabs. So you can compare across race, who's in programming, and things like that. So we're keeping our eye on that, and when we do see something that jumps out at us, we're, we're definitely going to uh, take a different, different, uh, a very deep, a deeper dive, as well as if there is something going on that we're going to have an action plan in place as well. Great, and so Beth. Uh, now, what if people have questions, they want to know, how do I find these statistics or uh, where can I go to get this information? Uh, where do they go? 
So we have on our website, Iowa Department of Corrections, we have a data tab that has uh, real live data, like today's, like what our population count looks like, things like that. And we have quick facts that comes out quarterly, which means has all types of information about how long people's sentences are, race, age, sex, types of crimes people are incarcerated for. So you can actually get that on our website. Oh, great. And for people out there who just want to learn about uh, the Iowa DLC and the disparity in recidivism, Mm-hmm. as it relates to recidivism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So if they want to learn about, uh, like, just recidivism in general or, like, how the, how disparities are, are caused? or Well, I would say more of the ones that are coming back who are minorities uh, versus uh, black, white, Caucasian, uh, you know, the breakdown in the minority mm-hmm. uh, recidivism. Yes. I uh, actually have that sitting right in front of me. So uh, what we have is if we're, you know, looking at like Asian Pacific Islanders, we know that about for now when we define recidivism, it's really important to define what that is. So people are very clear what that is. So for us, it's those that are leaving prison that return within three years to prison for either a new a new crime or a technical violation. So when I say technical violation, I mean it's a violation of their supervision conditions, not necessarily a new crime. So Thank you for clearing that up. Yes, yes. Some people, and that's what's interesting is it makes it very difficult for us to compare against other states to see how we're doing because people measure recidivism differently. They they measure by new arrest. They do out one or two years out. We do a three-year out. So for 18, which is FY18, this is our, our year we're focused on for recidivism, we go back for those released in 15. Okay. okay. So we'll have new recidivism numbers come July after July 1st, and that will be our 2019. That'll be our, that'll be our 16 cohort we filed three years. So that's really important to find so people understand what that means. So in terms of race uh, composition, in terms of who returns, the lowest group is Asian, Asian, uh, Asian Pacific Islanders at 21.7%, uh, whites at 39.3%, uh, African Americans at 36.6%, and American Indians and Alaska Natives at 40.8%. So pro- the thing is, it can be deceiving in a sense because it looks like uh, the um, American Indians and Alaska Natives recidivate at a higher rate. They just have smaller numbers. So if, if there's only 50 in our system and, you know, 20 of them come back, it looks a lot higher. So it kind of it can make those numbers look a lot larger. But So I ran some s- statistical tests on is there a significant difference between race? So I did some statistical analysis. And what I found out is that there's, a, there's statistically a difference between uh, blacks and Hispanics in terms of how recidivism. Okay? okay. And I also found out there's a statistical relationship between whites and Hispanics, but none between whites and blacks. Mm, wow. Mm-hmm. So that interesting. Was, so that was interesting. And I found out, too, just as a side note, that men and women don't recidivate differently. So the, there's, the only difference is between Hispanics and blacks, blacks and Hispanics and whites. And wow. so that's just something we'll have to keep our eye on and see if that changes over the years. So that's just due to more a sophisticated analysis just than just looking at per, straight percentages, which could look inflated if you have a small population that has a few people that recidivates. Now, how do you determine the consistency of uh, these numbers? Well, we, we basically, we have well, we have our data system we use, which is ICON, but we also use the Justice Data Warehouse and partner with Criminal Ju- Juvenile and Justice Planning, which has the court-level data. So we match our data with their data, and that's how we get our, our, our uh, recidivism information. So we try, you know, we do quality checks and things like that. 
um, to see. And usually how we know if someone's come back in our system, we, we follow them for three years and they come back as a new admin. And so, but we do a lot of quality improvement and insurance around our data to make sure it's accurate, if that, that answers your question. Sure, sure, yeah, it does. Okay. And Beth, you seem very, very passionate about your yes. job. And it shows, it reflects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're one of the very few Mm-hmm. that I've come across that actually have all your ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I say that, I mean, you came in so prepared uh, this morning. Uh, we had to go back and forth before we were able to actually come on the show, making sure that I had all my ducks in a row. And uh, and, and I appreciate that, too, uh, by the way, you know, because it's great preparation. But I just want to know, for the listeners out there, they're probably wondering, okay, Uh, We have someone on here on the radio show we're listening to now from the DOC. Why is it that we continue to see all the mass incarceration over nonviolent crimes in the state of Iowa? Yeah, that's that's challenging. And I guess it's really important to have the history first, which is something in mass incarceration. We talk about mass incarceration. It basically means that the United States incarcerates more people than anyone else in the world. And that this has been going on since the 1970s. And so a lot of that uh, policy, you know, uh, tough on, you know, you know, the war on drugs, tough on crime, three strikes, mandatory minimums, uh, some of that really causes huge ballooning or mushrooming in terms of our prison population. And a lot of that has some states have you know, repealed some of that back and changed some of the laws. Um, I think Iowa... Uh, I can tell. I can say, you know, the last couple of sessions have been looking at this uh, to see at these different policies and how they may uh, impact, um, you know, incarceration uh, with mandatory minimums. Uh, looking at it has minority impact. So I think, you know, we have some work to do in Iowa, but I also think that there's a lot of um, bipartisan support to look at those laws and see what types of impacts they're having. And I want to thank all of the sponsors out there for the Image Show, the Image Program. You guys really have made this thing special. You've helped with finance. You've helped assisting with in-kind donations. And this is what makes the Image Program move. Again, the Image Program stands for Inmate Movement Against Gang Evolution. That's where it was originated in prison. We are now in the community, a 501c3 nonprofit organization designed to help those who are looking to help their And so we just want to say thank you for that. Hi, this is Brian Lee with Docs Lounge in Johnston, Iowa. And we're a proud supporter of the Image for Lives program because of the positive changes that they make in our community. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it. Now, you see miracles in the makings on the Image show. I mean, uh, Beth was really looking for the link to that show after she had completed the interview and she said that she was uh, actually needed to send that to her director and it looks like whatever that interview did, it helped her out in elevating positions. She is now the director of the DOC instead of being the director of the risk assessment or whatever it is that she was over. So, I mean, that uh, shows that the good Lord is definitely blessing uh, the image show. And so we want you to continue to keep listening. Uh, We want to continue to keep bringing you raw and uncut flavor in your ear. On behalf of The Image Show, this is Robert Pate. I want to say thank you guys so much for helping us out, uh, for making The Image Show what it is today. We're about out of time, but we'll be back next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. 
from all of us in the studio here at 98.3 The Vibe and on The Image Show, so long and have a wonderful week.